Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn over to Paul's letter to Titus for the next little bit of our time together as we continue through this letter verse by verse. If you're visiting with us today and you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. And in fact, we've provided Bibles that should be within arm's reach of you. If you look in front of you somewhere on the back of a pew or a chair, you should see one. And you'll find what we're going to look at today on page 938 of that Bible that's in front of you. It'll be really helpful to you to have it in front of you because I'm going to be going back to it over and over, directing your attention to, to pieces of the text we're going to read this morning. And, and we want to make sure that you know where it's all coming from because I have nothing to offer you on my own here today. My only hope in getting up here and spending the next bit of time speaking at you is that, that God has spoken to you here and that he's going to use what he said to help you and to help me. So please do have it in front of you, and, and I think you'll be glad you did. Uh, perhaps uh, the most memorable book I read last year uh, was this mammoth biography of Frederick Douglass by the historian David Blight, one of my favorite historians. He won a Pulitzer Prize for this book, and he deserved it. It's an awesome book. Uh, Douglas, of course, is one of our great American heroes, a man born into slavery who educated himself, who escaped from his bondage and went on to become maybe the most influential abolitionist in the world and, in my opinion, perhaps the most eloquent orator and writer that we've ever had in our country. Uh, one of the reasons this book is so huge is that Blight seemed unable to resist quoting over and over and over and over again from speech after speech after speech that this great man delivered over the course of his life. And it made the book quite a slog. I'll go ahead and warn you of that. It's a little bit of a chore to get through the whole thing. But I was captivated by this man's words. And there was one particular theme that came up in speech after speech that I had not realized was such a big part of his public teaching that I won't ever be able to shake. Over and over again, as this man spoke and wrote around the country, fighting for the freedom of, his, of, of those who were still enslaved, as he once was, Douglas spoke out against the religious hypocrisy of people who claimed to be Christians, but who perpetuated the worst abuses of slavery. Over and over, he came after them coming after what he called the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity. That's a quote. A Christianity in which, here's another quote, the man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. Here's another quote. Douglas wrote, the slave auctioneer's bell and church-going bell chime in with each other. And the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. And while the slaveholder keeps the church going by his contributions week after week, the minister, quote, covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Frederick Douglass was a Christian. He was a man who trusted the promises of Jesus for himself. He was a man who loved the way of Jesus that he saw depicted in the Gospels. His beef was not with Christianity. What horrified Douglas ought to horrify me and you this morning. The simple fact that true words, that true ideas about who God is, the fact that the basics of the Gospel can coexist for centuries 
with the egregious and almost unimaginable abuse of fellow human beings. The fact that that's possible ought to haunt us as it did him. The, the problem with the, the doctrine of these slaveholders it wasn't, or rather the problem of these slaveholders, according to Douglas, it wasn't the doctrine. He had no beef with what they believed, what they claimed. The, the problem was that the way they behaved, the, the ugly behavior that marked their every day, obscured the beauty of the gospel that they professed. And we are dangerously delusional, guys, if we think we couldn't fall into the same problem today that they fell into then. We're dangerously delusional if we're not aware that we can have all the right words in our mouths and all the right ideas in our heads and yet through our lives tell lies about God, who he is and what he's done. To protect us from this from this problem we could fall into is one of the main reasons that Paul wrote the letter to Titus. He wrote this letter not so much to, to teach true doctrine, though he does. Other letters carry that burden. He, he wasn't so much worried that people were getting the gospel wrong. He wrote the letter mainly to make sure that lives fall in line with the doctrines that we profess. In the section we're going to look at this morning, Paul tells Titus, the first thing out of his mouth at the beginning of chapter 2 is, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Do you get it? Not just teach the doctrine, teach what goes with it. Teach what flows from it. That's verse 1. And then he warns against anything that might cause the word of God to be reviled. That's verse 5. We don't want, it to, we don't want this true, good, beautiful word to, to get slandered, to have mud thrown all over it. Don't do anything that could bring re, that, that kind of reviling onto God's word. And and what he wants most is to make sure that our behavior may adorn the God doctrine of our God and Savior. That's verse 10. All through the verses we're going to look at this morning, this is his theme. Your life will either obscure the beauty of the doctrine you hold, or it will adorn the beauty of the doctrine you hold. And think about an art museum when a, when a great work of art is, is brought in to be put on display. I mean, the art is the art. Whatever's in that picture stays beautiful no matter what. It's gorgeous. The question, though, is, is how will it be put on display? Will, will its beauty be clear to those who look at it? A, a museum isn't going to change what's on the, the picture, but they, they are going to change how it's framed. They're going to change where it's hung. They're going to change the lighting that, that shines on it or doesn't. They may have glass in front of it. If so, that glass could be foggy or it could be clear. What matters is, is how that beautiful art is displayed. Will, will its display obscure what's there or will it make it clear? Will it make its beauty pop for everyone who sees it? What Paul wants for Titus, for Titus' churches, and for our church is, is lives that make the beauty of the gospel pop for anyone who's looking at us. So what do we need if those are the lives that we want? Paul wrote the first 10 verses of chapter 2 in Titus to give us what we need. To live lives that adorn the gospel. What do we need? I want to give you four things. Four examples from what Paul says in these first 10 verses. I want to begin by reading the verses that we're going to consider this morning. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. As I pick up in Titus chapter 2. Again, that's on page 938 in the Pew Bible if you're using one of those. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 and read through uh, verse 10. Here is the word of the Lord for us this morning. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first thing we need, at least the first tool Paul gives us in this chapter, if we want lives that adorn the beauty of the gospel, is we need to learn self-control. We need to learn self-control. We're going to spend most of our time this morning down amongst the trees of these verses, and there are a lot of specific trees to note. But first, I think we just have to, we have to zoom out so that we don't miss the forest because we easily could. There is a central theme that runs through these 10 verses that connects back to what came before uh, last week, what Jonathan looked at last week, and, and, and a theme that holds a, a major key to understanding what brings out the beauty of the gospel in our lives. The, the beauty of, of the gospel shines out of us when by God's power we learn self-control. The beauty of the gospel comes out in our lives when, when we resist the default tendency we've got to indulge ourselves or promote ourselves or protect ourselves or simply to express ourselves and instead choose to check ourselves and to pour ourselves out for others. This is the sort of life that adorns sound doctrine, the doctrine of our God and Savior. I wonder, if you were here last week, I was out of town, and Jonathan preached on this section at the end of chapter 1. I wonder if you remember this, I think, a pretty funny way that Paul talks about the Cretans, uh, the people that live on this island where Titus is now there as a church planter. He, he quotes one of their own writers describing the Cretans as, and I quote, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> Not exactly the kind of branding you want for your resort destination on this beautiful island of Crete. There was some sort of dangerous teaching floating around in the churches of, of Crete that, that somehow tied back to this sort of default mode of the Cretans, what they were known for. Basically, they do whatever seems best for themselves. You can pick that up from that little quote, right? They lie to protect themselves. Surely, why else do you lie? They look like animals, like beasts. They go on instinct with their needs as their only compass. And he calls them lazy gluttons. That speaks for itself, doesn't it? They don't, they don't push themselves. They don't say no to themselves. They just go with the flow, indulging themselves. Now, can you imagine what these Cretans, if this is a pretty fair description of what they were like, of their norms, their cultural norms, can you imagine what they would do with Amazon or with Uber, Uber Eats or with Netflix where they don't even have to click yes to watch the next episode? Can you imagine if they had podcasts and bestsellers telling them that the path to a healthy life starts with self-discovery, then moves on to self-love, and, and, and ultimately leads to a self-expression where you ask others to love you as you are too? Can you imagine what Cretans would have done 
with the resources we have at our disposal for indulging and promoting ourselves? I I imagine it would look a whole lot like middle-class American life, or at least the life that we'll always have available to us. But, Paul says, chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And in example after example after example, the key central theme is self-control. In a culture known for self-indulgence, the gospel's beauty pops out in self-control. Maybe you noticed it. It comes up in several of these specific examples that we'll consider later. It's what older men need, verse uh, verse 2. It's what the younger women need, verse 5. It's what the younger men need, verse 6. And I think this is why. Think about what, what is this doctrine that our lives are supposed to adorn? Is it not a doctrine that begins with us in our deepest need? A pit we dig for ourselves precisely through self-indulgence? Precisely through just going through the flow, doing what comes natural? I mean, Paul himself describes where we were when the gospel found us in chapter 3 of this letter. We ourselves, chapter 3, verse 3, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And what happens when people who are living like that bump into other people who are living like that? Well, he says, malice and envy. That's what happens. Hating, hated by others and, and hating one another. There's the picture of the self unrestrained. That's where we were when the gospel found us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He pulled us out of that pit of self. Not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Jesus gave himself to save us from ourselves. That's, the, that's our doctrine. That's what we hold. Now, what accords with that doctrine? It's self-control. Not just doing whatever comes natural. Not, not going with the flow that led us to this pit in the first place, but checking our lives to make sure they conform to, to the way we've been loved by God in Christ. Friends, in a world where self is king, you've got a world full of warring many kings. And in a world like that, self-control is shocking. And the gospel that motivates self-control is seen for the beauty that it is. How precious must this God and his gospel be if he's worth saying no for? If we want lives that adorn the beauty of the gospel, we're going to need to learn self-control. And with that forest in place, I now want to zoom in on some trees, okay? A couple steps down for a closer look at the trees. To adorn the gospel, we need to learn self-control. And to learn self-control, number two, second thing we're going to need, we're going to need really specific teaching. We're going to need help to know how to control ourselves. And that's going to have to be super specific to where we are in life. The baseline command from Paul to Titus in verse 1 and in verse 7 has to do with his teaching. But the kind of teaching that we need if we're going to have the lives Paul wants us to have is the kind that's aimed at every stage and situation of life. And that's why when Paul tells Titus to teach his people how to adorn the gospel, he gives them examples of what to teach people in all sorts of different categories. Did you notice that? 
Basically, every one of you in here is covered. All of you are either an older man or an older woman or you're a younger woman or you're a younger man. You're all covered in this and you all need to be taught specifically how to adorn the gospel in your situation where you are. That's the overall point. I I just want to bring a little bit of life to it by walking you through some of what he says to each of the people in each of these situations because I think that bigger point of of why we need the specific teaching becomes a lot clearer when you consider what teaching he, he told Titus to pass on. I want to walk you through these category by category just really quickly. Let's first look at what he has to say to older men and older women. What does gospel-adorning self-control look like for them? Well, uh, Paul says to teach them to be sober-minded and dignified, to think of a kind of gravitas and a, a seriousness about them, a kind of urgency about what's going on around them. He, tells them, or he says, teach them to be sound in faith, looking ahead with, with confidence about what God has promised, to be sound in love, still looking around at others. Who can I invest in? What do I have to offer? And to be sound in steadfastness or endurance, persevering through, through life all the way to the end. He basically says, teach the same thing to women, likewise for the women, like all of that, and, and, and teach them to be reverent, he says, a similar seriousness or heaviness about their, their life in the world. Teach them to avoid slander and to avoid too much wine. This is what self-control looks like in this stage of life. I, I wonder, does it, do you see immediately why that would be so? Why this kind of teaching, these specific traits, would be useful for the older men and the older women in this congregation? It's been said that, that growing old isn't for wimps. If you're growing old, uh, or if you're close to someone who is, uh, you know that that's the truth. There is a, a painful winnowing that happens as you age. And when you're younger, you're surrounded by possibilities all around you. And you're adding up in your life, you know? You're adding new relationships, new friendships, perhaps a new family and, and new members to the family. You're adding up potentially responsibilities and, 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 uh, and, and opportunities all around you. But as you age, when you go over that proverbial hill... You watch as little by little what you had is taken away. The body that once served you so well, (laughs) that once grew stronger and stronger, it starts to break down. The responsibilities you once had that filled your life, maybe more than you wanted it to be full, they start to get handed off to other people until it may feel that you're not needed at all. Your relationships change as you age. Your, Your friends, they grow old too. Sometimes they die. And your kids, if you have them, they grow up. Their needs change. They move away sometimes. And for the most part, I could go on. For the most part, you know, you live with this pain, this winnowing, knowing that these losses aren't reversible. This, this, this only goes one way. That's a lot to live with, guys. Under these conditions, you're going to face temptations you didn't face when you were younger. You may struggle with resentment toward the young, those who still have what you once had. That resentment may bubble up, bubble out, using the only weapon you've got left, your tongue, to slander, to run down people who aren't around. You may face the temptation to to numb the pain with substance abuse or distraction. Without self-control, how can you keep on looking ahead in faith rather than, than living in the past? fixated on what was 
Without self-control, how do you keep on pouring yourself out for others when you feel so depleted and tired? Without self-control, how do you how do you stay steadfast and endure when you know that the pain you're living with now is going to be with you to the end? When you don't have a lot of hope that things will get better? How do you endure like when that's what you're faced with? But But for all the challenges of getting older, there are precious, unique opportunities too. Because when an older believer holds on in faith all the way to the end, (laughs) when an older believer invests himself in others wherever he can, giving whatever he's got, holding nothing back, when an older believer controls herself so that she can give of herself, oh, friends, the gospel just looks so beautiful, doesn't it? Churches who neglect caring for and teaching specifically to the challenges of older age will also miss out on the benefit of of watching saints age in faith and learning the power of the gospel to hold someone all the way to the end. Pray with me, would you, for a church in which our teaching and, and our attention reaches to every stage all the way to the end and in which we benefit from watching our brothers and sisters age all the way to the end in a faith that holds them firm. Would you pray with me that that'll be our church? Let me give you a couple examples from what he says for younger women and younger men. Let's pick up back again in verse 4 and read through verse 6. Just a couple more examples here. He says that to the younger, younger women, they're to be trained to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be working at home and kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. And likewise, he says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I don't know about you, but a couple things about this little list jump out immediately to me when I read it. First thing I notice is that Paul spends two full verses laying out what to teach young women. Then when he gets to the young men, it's like he just throws up his hands and says, just urge them to be self-controlled. It might seem like Paul is picking on young women here and letting young men off the hook as if he's got something against women. But I believe there's actually another reason for the differences in what he says to one, about one category and the other. Paul cares about these women, and he wants to make sure they're not undervalued or overlooked in the church community. So here's the thing. Titus is their shepherd. He's likely himself a somewhat younger man. He knows that life. He knows that experience because it's his. He knows the challenges that come with it from the inside out, backwards and forwards. So when Paul just tells Titus to tell younger men to be self-controlled, he knows Titus knows what that means. You'll know what to do with that. You'll know how to help them be self-controlled in their unique situation. You don't need me to tell you. But the same thing that can make a, a shepherd an asset to, to people who are exactly where he is in, in life, if he's not careful, can make him a liability to other groups without even noticing it, without even meaning to. You can be blind to the unique challenges that other people are facing. Paul didn't want that to happen. So he's pushing Titus to look beyond his own category and pay attention to the lives that other people are living and to the unique challenges that they face and the opportunities they have to adorn the gospel and make its beauty clear to everybody who knows them. He's pushing Titus to make sure these women get the attention they deserve and the help they need to honor God, to adorn the gospel, 
to control themselves in the unique situations they're living in. So I, I think that's why the extra tension to, to younger women here. What does he have to say to them? What sort of self-control amongst younger women adorns the gospel? I, I, I think most items in this list speak for themselves. He says they're to be pure and kind. That makes sense. He says you need to train them to love their kids and their, their, their husbands. He's assuming here these younger women are married and have kids. And I think you can, it makes sense why you'd need training to do that. It doesn't come easy, loving your husband and your kids. Uh, there's a kind of love that comes in the honeymoon phase of a marriage, but when the husband's not always so attentive or available or put together, that love needs to evolve. There's a kind of emotional wave that you get on the birth of a child in the ninth month of no sleep when you hear that cry again, or when they hit the terrible twos, or when they hit adolescence or whatever. Well, then you're going to need a love that comes as an act of will. Let me put a different set of words on that. You're going to need a love that you have to be trained to. Let me put another set of words on it. You're going to need a love that only comes through relentless self-control. A love that costs you as Christ's love for us cost him. And, and that love, friends, in practice, that love, oh, it makes the gospel's beauty shine. Train them to love their husbands and their kids. There is gospel-adorning power when they do so. So far, I think these items in the list pretty well speak for themselves. What about the working from home, though? Did that one jump out at you guys when we read the list? I bet it did. It, it, it always has to me and to most people that I've talked to about this text. Because that's the one that really pops. I, I thought rather than, than spend a ton of time on all the other elements, I, I want to spend extra time on this one. There is the, ele- the, 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 the item in this list about submitting to your own husbands. That's a crucial thing to spend some time with as a Christian woman who's married. Uh, and, and I want to refer you to a sermon that was almost exclusively about that subject from a series that, that, uh, that we did a few years ago. It's on our website, a sermon on 1 Peter chapter 3, where, where almost the whole sermon is, is trying to understand what that looks like in practice, why it's, it's good news, not, not constricting news, and, why, uh, and, and, why, and rather how we can put into practice the command that Paul gives here. Uh, I want to refer you to that rather than spend time treading that ground here because I want to I spend a little more time on this working from home bit. What does it mean to, to, to work from home as an expression of self-control that adorns the gospel? My sense is that when we come to this command, our attention goes straight to whether or not it's okay for women to work outside the home. That seems to be the question that's raised for us and the, the obje- potential objection that we bring to this, this phrase uh, so I just want to add, head that off at the pass and say, I, I don't think Paul's talking about that at all. That's just not a question he's interested in. He can't imagine that question, to be fair. In the first century Roman world, women didn't have the opportunities that they have today to work outside the home. He, he's, not, he's not trying to give them one version of life as opposed to another. He's trying to speak into, as a pastor, the one version of life they've got and elevate it as an opportunity to honor God and love others. He's not speaking, in other words, to condemn work outside the home, but to elevate work inside the home, to insist on its value and goodness and beauty and to make sure they know it's worth the high cost of doing that work well. This work is precious and beautiful and pleasing to God. Now, obviously, we're in a different situation today. 
Women today have options for working outside the home that Paul's audience didn't have. And I believe we benefit from that reality. I benefit from the work many of you are doing outside of your homes and from watching you do it in a way that honors God, that brings glory to him, and that serves your neighbors so well. We're in a different reality today. And I don't believe Paul's word should restrict whether or not women pursue opportunities like that. I don't think you'll find such a restriction in the Bible. But Paul's words do mean this. Whatever options you may have for serving others and honoring God outside the home, if God has given you a family, he has called you to invest your best in them. And it's worthy work to do. Whatever tasks you may keep for yourself versus delegate to others, the calling is to prioritize the life of your home. Another way to translate this phrase is to manage your household, to to manage its affairs in a way that leads to the flourishing of your family. Paul isn't saying you can't pursue any any influence outside your home. He is saying, though, you must pursue influence inside your home. And no amount of influence outside your home, no matter how great you may be in your career out there, can justify a lack of attention to your home. Sisters, I want you to hear this. Please hear this. Whether you're combining your responsibilities at home with a career outside the home or not, or doing all your work uh, you know, in this season in your home, whatever your situation may look like, if you're faithful within the family God has given me, or rather within the family God has given you, if your influence there honors him, you are influential enough. I know there's a lot of messages out there. You guys are, are, are bombarded with a uniquely overwhelming set of instruction about what you should be and do. You have got options all around you and voices telling you what you should be able to pull off. And there's strong messaging out there that what you give to your home and family is less impactful, less meaningful, less significant than what you could do outside your home. There's messaging out there that'll tell you if you give your time and attention to your family, you're selling yourself short. You're undershooting your potential in life. And, and maybe, maybe it feels that way to you, actually. When you compare what you see from your investment at home and what you see in your day job, if you've got one now, or in your former career, if you had one before, it, it could be that the, the mundane work The fact that it's so unseen by most people, even your own family barely seems to recognize what you spend your time investing in. It could be that that reality that you live with makes you wonder about the value of investing yourself in your home. And if that's you, what I want you to know is this. The God who gave you your family, the God who calls you to work in your home, He sees all of it. It pleases him. It honors him. I know it takes tremendous self-control to rise up again day after day after day to the same relentless work. But but friends, sisters, that self-control adorns the gospel. Its beauty just pops out when you do it day in and day out. It is beautiful to see Thank you for the model you're giving to me of what it is to pour yourself out as Christ did for us. Thank you for that. We need it so badly. You're giving it to us. Keep it up. It's worthy. Zoom back out from this forest. 
what help do we need to live lives that show the beauty of the gospel? Well, in, in, the way, in a way, this list is just scratching the surface. Paul's not trying to be comprehensive. He's just giving us a few examples. What can you see, though, from the bigger picture is we're going to need really specific teaching because the lives that adorn the, the gospel are going are to adorn it in the very specific situations we find ourselves in. We need, we need teaching that pays attention to where we are and that, that gives us the concrete and practical advice that we need for honoring God where he's put us, which brings me to the third thing that we'll need. We're not just going to need specific teaching like the teaching Paul calls for here. We're also going to need good models. Lots of good models. I'm, I am self-aware, probably hopefully growing in self-awareness about the limits of what I'm doing right now in this moment. I mean, I'm a believer in public teaching, right? I've given my life to this. I believe that the Lord uses it, despite our limitations, limitations of the guys who are standing up here teaching. Uh, but as indispensable as clear and and, and faithful gospel preaching and teaching may be. The teaching we need has got to be really relentlessly practical and far more practical, far more specific than what any sermon could possibly be. That's why Paul says in verse 7 to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. They need to catch it from you. Not just from what you're saying, but from what they see. And that's why in, in verse, uh, just, just ahead of that, in his verses to older women, he tells older women to teach younger women. Can, can you see why this is so crucial, friends? Have you ever tried to fix something around your house just by reading the owner's manual versus watching a YouTube video of somebody fix it? The YouTube video is going to be way more helpful. Now, now, even compared to the YouTube video, have you ever tried to fix something from an owner's manual versus asking a friend who already knows how to do it to come over and, let's say, not do it for you, but I mean, maybe give you some meaningful job, hand them the screwdriver or something, but, 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 but do it right there alongside of you so you see it in action. It's one thing to read the manual. All the information may be there, but we don't learn that way, not, all, not exclusively. We need to see it. It's caught, not just taught. And, and, and guys, no matter how much practical application we may shoehorn into these sermons that we preach to you every Sunday... No matter how practical a Sunday school class or a book study may be, it's just never going to be specific enough to help every person who's sitting out there way down into the details of each unique situation. It, we're not a big church. You know, look around here. I don't know how many of us are here, but not that many of us are here compared to, to some other churches. And even here, even in our couple hundred people, we have way too many unique situations in this room right now for me to have a chance at hitting all of you where you need to be hit. You just can't do it. So how do we get all the way down to the ground? Only if we've got a church full of people who are modeling gospel-adorning lifestyles. You're going to need access to a friend who can look closely at what you're going through and speak directly into it. And when they do, it helps tremendously if they're speaking from experience. Because they've been there. Because they've wrestled through what faithfulness looks like and they can show you what they've learned. Surely this is what Paul has in mind when he tells the older women to teach what is good to the younger women. Yes, Titus has a role in this. He's writing to Titus, and he's telling Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And, and in a way, because Titus is an elder in this church, he's responsible for the younger women's teaching. He needs to make sure they're getting what they need to honor God in the lives God has put them in. It is on Titus in a unique way. 
But it's one thing to be responsible for it and another thing to be the one doing it. Paul knows better than to expect that Titus has everything he needs to give these younger women everything they need. What they need is an older woman who's done the hard work in her own life of, of bringing the beauty of the gospel into her situations. What, what, what Paul calls for here has a huge effect on how we try to spread ministry around in our church. I mean, one of the ways that our elders serve in leadership is not to do all the counseling or the discipleship or, uh, or, or whatever, but to make sure that it's happening by pairing people up with one another who have something to offer each other. You can be about that too. One of the great gifts that God has given us in our church, you just look around this room right now, you'll see. One of the great gifts that he's given us is that he's, he's put here saints who are scattered across a wide range of age and life experience. Make use of what he's given you. It's good to be teachable. Seek out models that have something to offer that you may not have on your own. Ask them for it because they may be too timid to give it to you without that invitation. And if you're older... You've got something essential to offer. Please don't be shy about offering it. When we join our church, one of the, the set of promises we make to each other as members in our church includes a promise that we will watch over one another. That's a two-way promise that I will give to you the oversight you need, but I will also open myself wide up for the oversight I need from you. Paul's calling us to, to, to the kind of lifestyles we've already promised. So let me encourage you to seek out this kind of influence in someone else's life. It's not presumptuous of you. It's just you following through on what you've already promised you would do. And we can't do without you. We need you. If we're going to lead lives that adorn the beauty of the gospel, we need to learn self-control. That's going to take specific teaching, and it's going to take really good models. What I want to do with the last couple of minutes is give you one more thing that we need. One more thing we need if we're going to, to live these lives that adorn the gospel. We're going to need concrete hope. I want to spend these next couple of minutes on what Paul says about the final group in his list. My translation refers to them about as bondservants. Yours may say slaves. Both words work. And I want to spend these minutes on this group because the barrier to hearing what Paul has to say to them is perhaps higher for us than at any other point in this passage and, and the benefit of receiving his message to them is perhaps greater than at any other point in this passage. So hang on with me for a few more minutes and look with me again at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me begin with the barrier to hearing Paul's message here. I, I don't know how these verses land on you. If you grew up in this country as I did, and if you know about the history of slavery in this country, it's just almost impossible not to hear these words in the mouth of a southern slaveholder, like the ones that Douglas so passionately exposed for their hypocrisy. The fact is, these verses were in their mouths. They were taken up by those slaveholders. They were used to teach slaves to keep them in line, to justify their wicked oppression of fellow image bearers, and in many cases, their oppression of their own brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no use in denying that ugly history. That is part of the history of, of the interpretation of these two verses. 
And that ugly history, friends, it's why it's so essential that we take these words out of the mouths of the slaveholders where they never belonged in the first place and put them back into the mouth of the apostle, himself a member of an ethnic minority in the mighty Roman Empire, himself a, a criminal member of what seemed like an obscure and bizarre religious cult, himself a man looking up the social ladder at almost everybody else, speaking to his brothers and sisters down there with him at the bottom. Slavery in the Roman world was different from our history in many ways, but there is no question it was a terrible way to live. It wasn't just a job. Slaves were often oppressed with little legal protection. There were no clear opportunities for them to better themselves even when they were freed, if they got free. To be a slave, like the ones Paul's writing to here, was to, to live with suffering. But Paul knew a lot about innocent suffering. And he wrote to these brothers and sisters as if they matter. As if whether the Roman Empire acknowledged their rights and dignity as people, that God gave them those rights. God upholds their dignity. They have an agency now, no matter what. And he wrote to them as believers with an opportunity to show the beauty of the gospel right where they are. He wrote to them without hope that they would ever experience a society fundamentally different than the one they were stuck in. He wrote to them as a pastor, not as a revolutionary, to give them the help they needed to honor God where, God, where God's providence had brought them. And in a way, he tells them to behave as model slaves, even to be a blessing to those who kept them in bondage. He tells them not to seek their own interests, not to steal. How could anybody possibly accept this? How could, they, how could they suffer oppression and give love in return? How could they resist the inevitable urge for revenge? How? Isn't this too much to ask? And as if Paul knew that these questions would come, he sets this heavy, heavy teaching down on the concrete foundation of hope. Just as soon as he's told the slaves to behave in the way that he's told them to behave, he says, for, because, here's the reason to behave like this. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now we're waiting, verse 13, for our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. You can behave like this now because you're hoping for that then. Can you see this concrete hope for the future? Brings a remarkable clarity of purpose to the present, even for those who are suffering deeply from their own oppression. It gives them one question to ask. What can I do in my situation, whatever its challenges, to adorn the doctrine of God my Savior? See, I know he's got me. I know I don't have to worry about that. I can focus instead on his hope in me on display for anyone who's watching. And what better opportunity to display the beauty and power of the hope that we have in Jesus? What better opportunity than to endure patiently under, under suffering that most of us in this room cannot even imagine and to do it with attitudes that, that seek to, to even love those who are causing the pain? Who would do that if not those in, who have inherited a hope that nothing can touch? 
What questions would this raise for those who held them in bondage? You're not, you're not pilfering? How? You're, you're pleasing me? Why? And think of the answer they could give. Because the grace of God has appeared in my life. The grace of God has shown up. And I'm waiting for the glory to be revealed. That's why I'm not pilfering. And nothing you can do to me can take away from that hope that I have. Nothing you can do to me or do for me or nothing I could steal from you will add anything to the hope that I have. It is set. It is concrete. It is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, this is the hope we need. Do you have it? If you want a life that adorns the beauty of the gospel, you can't do without it. Pray with me now that the Lord will give it to us as the foundation of all our obedience. Father, we do pray for a concrete hope that shows the beauty of the gospel to everyone who's watching us. And we ask you to overcome in us the many, many effects of indwelling sin that still hold us back. We want lives that are self-controlled and aimed at the, at the glory that, that you will shine through us as we become more and more like your blessed and beautiful Son. We ask you to carry this work on. In Jesus' name, amen.